Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Move Forward Radio, brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Here you will learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. It's July 17th, and the 2012 Summer Olympics in London are now 10 days away, with the Paralympic Games a month after that. Soon, many of us are going to be glued to our televisions, watching some of the best athletes in the world competing in the games that are as varied as the nations they represent. We're going to see gold medal performances and award ceremonies. We're going to see the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. In some cases, we're even going to see the reactions of the competitor's family. What we're unlikely to see, though, is all that's required to prepare an athlete to perform at the highest level on the grandest stage. In today's episode of Move Forward Radio, we're going to talk to three physical therapists who can take us behind the curtain and give us a view of the Olympics and Paralympics from an angle that few get to see. They'll tell us some of the ways that Olympians are special, and maybe other ways that they're a lot like us. Later in the show, we're going to be taking your questions by phone and social media. If you have a question for the panel, the number to call is 646-564-9841, and that's a number I'm going to repeat later in the show. We'll take your calls in the second half. You can also submit your questions via Twitter by tweeting us at MoveForwardPT or by using the hashtag MoveForward. A reminder before we meet our guests that the insight from our panel is for information purposes only and should never be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. To find out how, to, excuse me, to find out how a physical therapist can help you and to contact a physical therapist in your area, go to MoveForwardPT.com. With that, let's start to meet our panel. We have Scott Weiss of New York. Scott, welcome. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. And Amber Donaldson of Colorado. Thank you for having me. And Denise Hutchins of Oklahoma. I'm glad to be part of this. Excellent. Thank you. So thank you to our panel. Scott, um, I'm going to start with you. Scott practices in New York and is preparing for what I believe is your third stint as a physical therapist at the Summer Olympics. Uh, Is that correct? That's correct, actually, yeah. So I understand you're going to be working with members of the sailing team, and I know this isn't your first Olympics. So give me the background, first of all, on how you got involved with the United States Olympic Committee and the sailing team specifically. Sure, sure. It's an interesting path. Well, I think I kind of have the classic volunteer pathway with the USOC. I applied in about 96, so I filled out an application, you know, in about 96 as a PT, and I didn't hear anything back at all till about 2000. And then, uh, of course, you know, being very excited, I, you know, got a call back. They were just updating my application, so it wasn't that I was going anywhere, but yet a couple of months later, I did get another letter saying that um, they wanted me to be in Lake Placid. So that was really my first introduction um, to the USOC. It was in about 2001 I worked with volleyball. And then they have a four-tier pathway that I took all four tiers. So from working with uh, youth volleyball in 2001, I went to working with bobsled in 2002, which was amazing in Park City. Then in 2003, the third, um, I guess, tier and Amber could uh, correct me if I'm wrong, would be doing some sort of international games with a team. So I was able to represent our country outside of of the games here nationally, and I worked with the sailing team for the first time in 2003 at the Pan Am Games. Luckily, things went great, um, and on every level, the team and I connected. And then in 2004, I was lucky enough to be asked back 
to work at Athens, which was the 2004 Games. So that's kind of really how it started, truly as an application years later with the call, and then I uh, got put with sailing. That's great. So let's talk about sailing because obviously, you know, swimming and gymnastics and track, those tend to be very visible sports. And I'm not sure that, you know, the average person watching necessarily even has an understanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about sailing at the Olympic level. So let's just first get on the same page. I mean, how big are the boats in Olympic sailing and and essentially what are the sailors doing, physically speaking, to race? Sure. Well, first, we're not even in London proper. We're actually on like a small island off the coast of London called uh, Portland. So it's not really close to the main venues. But there's about seven classes of boats so all different types of boats, both, you know, male and female racers. There's about, like, one to three athletes in a boat, I would say. But the size of the boats, I'd say the biggest boat is what we call the star class, and that's about 23 feet. Um, but everything else is smaller than that. I guess you would kind of call it a dinghy. But, um, but they're smaller boats. And, um, you know, the races are done over several days. So they have about 10 races. Each class has about 10 races over several days, and they race to different marks. They have a windward mark and a leeward mark, and it's not like the America's Cup where it's a long race around a big distance. They're shorter races that the Olympic sailing classes do. So, you know, that's pretty much the basics of it, and it goes very deep from, you know, having the right of way to protest and the medal race being double and you know if you win first place you win a bullet but in the end the person who has the least amount of numbers you know wins because it's all done by points okay so so when we think about america's cup at least what i think about and i know no nautical terms but i mean we think about people (laughs) basically you know hand cranking uh you know cranks that are you know connected to lines that are connected to sails and all that kind of stuff and i think that's not necessarily what we're talking about at this olympic level so Physically, what, you know, what's a sailor doing at the Olympic level? At the Olympic level, again, it's smaller races. So pretty much, you know, it's it's all a smaller race instead of a long distance. They're they're really racing toward different marks. I'd say the races last anywhere from one class can race about twenty minutes is one race, and then the longest race could be about forty minutes. You know, from windsurfing. So that's about you know. The, the time of it, but they're doing so many different things on the water, in essence. And so, and so, as a result of you know what they're physically doing, what are the popular injuries that you see? Well, I mean, you know, people look at sailing and then you can't really have, you know have an idea because unfortunately it's not a, a very spectator-like sport. It's not like there's a stands out in the water, you know, so it's kind of hard to see. But they deal with environmental injuries, and I mean. I would say, like, they deal with the heat and humidity, just being out in the water. In China, we we were really concerned with the bacterial levels in the water. So environmental issues really is is, a part with the sailors, just because they're out there. Um, Thinking about the unstable surface that they're on, that kind of gives rise to a lot of core strengths. And if there's any question about that, one of our sailors, Anna Tunicliff, is in this edition of ESPN's Body um, Edition. So if you want to see what a, a big core looks like, that's uh, one place you can go. But, yeah, you're right. They're pulling lines, they're pulling sheets, but they're not cranking. Okay. And so, I mean, so it sounds like core is, is the, the main thing. When you're – are there injuries, for example, that you see in, in sailors that compare to something that you would sort of see 
sort of on an everyday basis in the clinic, or do they tend to be pretty unique? Oh, that's totally what we see in the clinic, especially here in New York. I mean, there are injuries specifically, like TFCC injuries, roller plate injuries we see. Um, They're always... Their feet are locked in straps, so when the boat goes one way and their body goes the other way, there's a lot of twerking. So I'd say it's very, very common to what we see in the clinic. So I, I'm just curious in general, when when you get connected at this point at the Olympics and, and the sailors are already and obviously they've been peaking for this and they're looking forward to this, as a physical therapist, are you essentially often treating existing injuries, or is it essentially more athlete maintenance, trying to maintain high performance at this stage of the Olympics, or does it just vary from athlete to athlete? It does vary. It does vary from athlete to athlete. But I could say, and I'm sure a lot of the other guests would corroborate this, is that almost every athlete we have is dealing with something going into the games. It's a very common um, statement. Uh, it's not every four years. It's every day. And, you know, these athletes are dealing with stuff, you know, before they go in, during the games, and, of course, they're dealing with some stuff after. So, yeah, they're they're dealing with um, and kind of nursing, so to speak, injuries, you know, throughout. Right. So you talked about how you're not in London proper and, and sort of uniquely um, sequestered, essentially, off to the side. I mean, what's mm-hmm. the – give me the timeline of what an average day is like for you at the Olympics and treating these athletes. Well, it does It does start pretty early. Uh, I'd say, you know, it's about from 6 a.m. to about, you know, 9 to 11 at night, depending on when the athletes kind of fade out. But for the most part, you're really there to treat and do whatever they need. So the, the days can be pretty long. Um, my specific event will be from the 23rd to closing ceremonies. So, you know, several days nonstop, and you're really there 24 hours for them. Right, and so that, that, I guess, in and of itself may may answer the question I was just about to ask. But, I mean, is there a unique challenge to treating athletes in this Olympic setting? I mean, you know, overall, working with the athletes over the years, I have to say one of the things that I've personally learned and, you know, a challenge that, that I faced was truly listening to what the athlete needs. You know, so many times we would like to impart what we know and what we think or what we're learning as a PT, you know, onto the patient, but what I realize is really just having an empty cup and listening to what the athlete needs because, boy, they know exactly what they need if you really uh, want to listen. That's one of the first things I learned, but, you know, over the time, you know, connecting with different organizations, it could be a challenge, and um, and really sometimes being in different countries, communication can be a challenge, but, um, but the, you know, we've adapted to a lot of that. So, you know, you t- just talked about that, and I wanted to follow up with that. I mean, how well do these athletes know their body compared to, say, somebody, the average person who walks in off the street and, and walks, needs physical therapy because their shoulder or their knee hurts? It, that's a hard question because it's so individualized. You know, there are some people that have a, a nice, exquisite sensation of their body, and there are other people out there that, unfortunately, don't have a good awareness of where their body is in space. So... You get all different types, but yes, most of the athletes I've come across, they know what they need. There's a sensitivity there. You know, they're really just training every day for those four years, so they do develop a heightened sense, I would have to say. And being an athlete myself who, you know, once almost made the games, I could could relate to that. And so what was your event? I actually was a a Taekwondo artist. I studied the martial arts. And uh, how has... uh, has 
Taekwondo change in the game since because that it must have been a relatively new sport then, wouldn't it have been or no? It was new in '88. It was actually it was new in '88, and that's when I what I was trying out for in 1988 games in Seoul, Korea. Um, I unfortunately lost at the Olympic trials, but wanted to stay so to say parallel with a field that I loved. And I said if I can't make it as an athlete myself, and this might have been the end of my road, well, maybe I could help somebody else win a gold medal, and I guess that's what I'm really doing here, Jason. Yeah, and that's you know, a question that I, I really want to ask all of our panels today, but uh, this is a perfect chance to ask you. I mean, what's that like to be in their, in their emotional space and at this time when they're something that they've dreamt of their whole lives, something they've worked hard for at least four years, you know, if not a lifetime, gearing for this moment. I mean, what's what's that energy like and how do you feel as a physical therapist? I mean, is it is it uplifting? Is it nerve wracking even? I mean, how do you feel? It's nerve wracking, there's fear involved, it's you know, it's the intensity and the energy is more than you will ever feel almost in anything one will do in their life. So to to adjust to that and stay focused really becomes the task, I think, at the games. And what I've found from talking to really athletes and trainers and physical therapists or physios from other countries is that the psychological game is just as important as the physical game. You can train all you want, but on that day, you really got to just keep consistent and think it's just another practice or it's just another day. And to do that really, really takes a, a sharp mind and a relaxed soul. Yeah, how do you then fit in with, I mean, obviously these athletes come, they have coaches, maybe they have, you know, uh, uh, their own personal physical therapist or massage therapist or anything down the line. You know, how do you do you fit into this larger picture and, and do you just sort of try to make sure that they, they physically feel okay and stay out of it or do you try to be a mentor and positive emotional figure as well? Well, I, you know, I know my limitations as a physical therapist, and I know when to refer out when necessary. And, of course, that's kind of, you know, the most important. But, yes, when a patient is on your table, there is a connection made. I think everybody will agree to that. And throughout that connection, you know, I guess with my my past history, I like to hear what the athlete's going through. I like to know that, and I do let that connection or the time that I'm working on, on them be an open forum. And there are times where in Beijing we had the regular treatment room, but then we called it the Zen room, where certain athletes didn't want to be around everybody and they needed to just do their own thing. So, yes, I facilitated that for them. That's great. So, we're, Scott, we're going to come back to you later. I want to get to our other panelists. Uh, if, if people are just tuning in, you're listening to Move Forward Radio. We're talking to physical therapists who are giving us a rare view behind the curtain of the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Um, you can send questions to us on Twitter by tweeting us at MoveForwardPT or use the hashtag MoveForward. Later in the show, we'll also be taking your calls, and now's another opportunity to write down that phone number. It's 646-564-9841. And remember, to learn how physical therapists can help you, visit MoveForwardPT.com. Next, I'd like to introduce Amber Donaldson. Amber practices in Colorado Springs, Colorado, which is where the United States Olympic Committee is headquartered and also where the USOC has one of its flagship training centers. Uh, Amber, welcome. Thank you. So let's start there. Let's start talking about uh, the athletes before they get to the Games because I think London is your first Games, but you have experience with Olympic athletes that, that dates back before that. So talk to us about Colorado Springs and what that center is like and, and what you've seen there. Right. Uh, the Calder Springs Center is, is, as you said, the flagship. We have another facility in Lake Placid, as uh, Scott mentioned, 
and also in uh, Chula Vista, California. But uh, Colorado Springs is is the largest and kind of where everything is headquartered. Uh, we have a 35-acre campus here and 15 resident sports. So that turns out to be about 150 resident athletes that live live here year-round from three to maybe 10, 12 years sometimes. Uh, and then we have 550 beds overall. So we have about 15,000 what we call campers that come in each year uh, for different sports. So a lot of the athletes will come and train here that maybe not are that maybe are not based here, but that will come for training before trials or before big competitions, or also some of the developmental camps just come in uh, to get the experience of being in this facility. We have everything, you know, they can stay, uh, room, board, amazing food, amazing uh, facilities for both training, for strength and conditioning, for uh, sports performance testing and rehab. It's really kind of a one-stop shop. And so we have, you know, our athletes, we have a lot of international athletes as well that come and train here so that our athletes have a different uh, kind of experience when they're training as well. Is there a certain kind of athlete that that center tailors to? I mean, I have to think that altitude training or training the ability to train at altitude is part of it. So does that influence one way or the other the kind of athlete that you see there? It does, but we see just about every sport come through here at some point. So right now we have a lot of the winter Olympic athletes that are out here training. Uh, So our main resident sports are triathlon, fencing, men's gymnastics, modern pentathlon, all three disciplines of wrestling, shooting, both Paralympic and able body, weightlifting, swimming, uh, Paralympic swimming, Paralympic cycling, judo, track and field. So we have a lot of different sports, but figure skating is based here. We have a lot of bobsledders in town right now. We have, so, uh, you know, just kind of, Every every day is different with what athletes are are in town. So, uh, so take me through yeah. an average day of what you might have at that facility. I mean, could you see how many potentially how many different athletes from different sports could you potentially see in a day? Wow, uh, we could see. Uh, sometimes we'll have up to probably twenty twenty five different sports uh, at one time. So. We'll have a lot of variety, and uh, we might see a lot of, you know, right now we have a weightlifting camp in, so we'll see a lot of young weightlifters, and then next week is a lot of volleyball athletes, and next week, you know, a lot of synchronized swimming in. And so, you know, it can kind of come in in flows, but at the same time, we have our resident athletes, which are all those sports I mentioned, and uh, we just really see the gamut. So you have to, you never know who's going to walk in the door, what sport or what uh what discipline or what position in that sport things like that so and then we have sports like modern pentathlon that's five sports within their sport so sure uh, so yeah. and that's so that leads actually to a to another question that I have, which is how much do you really need to consider the sport with the injury so for example, if I have a shoulder injury, i mean do you need to know that I throw javelin i mean does that does that affect potentially how you either evaluate what the injury is or or how significant it is or what they need to do? I mean, is that part of the whole evaluation process to essentially think about what they're trying to do then? Yes, I I think that's really essential. Uh, We always say know your athlete and know their sport. And sometimes there's some of these sports, maybe you don't know every detail about 
the rules behind it or things like that, but you have to know what that athlete is required to do in their sport to be able to get them back to where they need to be. So uh, we have the benefit of being able to, you know, walk down the hall and watch them practice or speak with their coach or look at what their new equipment is and things like that. And that's really key to know, yeah, if it is a javelin thrower, why can't she rotate through her trunk to get that last uh, kind of eccentric pull? Or is there uh, something with their range of motion that's not allowing them to land on their vaults properly? It, it really is important to kind of know where they're coming from and because that's what they're going to come in saying is, I'm, you know, I feel like I can't get the pop on my throw or something like that, and they're not going to understand. Well, my glenohumeral joint is not rotating or something like that. Right. They're going to be very specific to their sport. You've got to be able to speak their language uh, to also communicate with their coach and their team as well. To if you're giving imp- uh, giving feedback as to how to help them, uh, not only maybe avoid injury, but to get back to their their sport. And also it's important to know because if you have to modify their practice or modify their training in some way, you have to know what that what is a modification for weightlifting. You know, weightlifters don't do body weight. They don't do high reps, things right. like that. You don't so it's really important to know that for specificity in your rehab as well. So, um Colorado Springs, obviously, uh, that facility you, I'm sure, have you know the top of the line um, capabilities and technology and all that to treat these athletes. How much has that changed, even since the last Olympics? Has it changed in terms of either how how athletes are evaluating themselves or how you're evaluating the athletes? I, I don't think it's changed significantly, though. I think you know we've moved to a much more multidisciplinary uh, approach, and so. Rarely do we look at an athlete on our own. We have a great team here of uh, physical therapists, chiropractors, massage therapists, physicians, uh, kind of the whole gamut. And so we really approach it as a multidisciplinary along with sport performance, so the dietitians, the sports psychologists. And I think that is really important, the team approach, to make sure that we're not missing something and we're making that big effort. As far as technology, you know, we have a great sponsor through GE, so we have access, we have x-ray on site, musculoskeletal ultrasound, things like that that help us to diagnose and kind of get to the bottom of some of the problems right away. We don't have to wait till next week to see how they're doing. We can pull them right off and uh, assess things uh, that way as well. So in that regard... uh, you know that's that's what we we do. We're all real manual therapists, so that's where we kind of focus. But uh, yeah, I guess that would be would be kind of a little bit of the shift. Right. So, you know, obviously when we when somebody watches the Olympics, when I watch the Olympics and we see them do some of the amazing things they do, whether it's you know Michael Phelps who wins numerous medals, or or whether it's just an athlete who finishes fifth but is still miraculous. Um, to see the gap between sort of the average weekend warrior, for example, and the Olympian is obvious. But I'm curious, from an injury perspective, are the injuries basically the same, or do Olympic athletes essentially have Olympic injuries? Uh, I think they're somewhat similar in a lot of ways, but uh, tennis, for example, tennis athletes don't get tennis elbow (laughs) But recreational tennis players do, just because of technique. Their technique is so much more 
uh, perfected. And so the injuries they get are a little bit more specific, I think, um, to to what their their power is, or and pro- probably also a little bit more of overuse. But in a, a specific way, you know, a specific, they're doing a, a drill or they're doing live wrestling or whatever it is. And, and so they're in those situations a lot more often. And so I think those are the type of injuries that we see uh, where the weekend warrior, we may see an overuse injury, which may be from, uh, again, technique breakdown, but uh, maybe pushing themselves beyond where they're prepared to go. Right. Uh, where these athletes are pushing themselves, but they they've been where they're going. <laughs> I guess is the way to say <laughs> right. say that. Mm-hmm. So London, uh, yes. first Olympics, actually. Correct. And so what um, what are your what's your role going to be over there? I'll be arriving and working in the village for a few days in the sports medicine clinic there, helping them get get up and running, and then I'll be heading out to Wimbledon to work with the tennis athletes for the whole time that they're competing. Uh, that's kind of my background. I've worked with pro tennis for many years, so I'll get to work with them, and then I'll head back into the village and uh, work there as well as at uh, Docklands, which is another uh, facility we have set up for sports medicine for some of the training partners and other uh, athletes that will be there to help the Olympians. So I'll be kind of between those two, helping with our athletes through the through the end of the games. So, so let's touch on tennis since that's, that's your background. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, tennis players at that level don't get tennis elbow. So what do they get? I mean, is there a common, you know, at that level, Olympic level, professional level, is there a common injury? There is, but it's uh, really specific to the surface. So on clay, They'll have a lot of adductor strains, groin strains, and a lot of shoulder because the ball gets heavy when it picks up the clay. And the ball, it's a lot slower game, so the rallies are a lot longer. Where on grass, it's a lot more low back, uh, glute tightness, and uh, wrists because of the way the ball bounces. It's a little more unpredictable. They have to spin it a little bit differently than they do normally, so it'll be wrist injuries. Hard courts, a lot of low back ankle sprains, blisters, things like that, because it's not as forgiving. So, you know, it's really dependent on the surface. Uh, But for those athletes, they, like a lot of the athletes, they train 11 and a half months a year. There's no off-season, so it's uh, it's just a go, go, go with a lot of changes. They Nothing is consistent in tennis. The surface changes, the balls change, their their, uh, strings on their racket have to change. So there's a lot of change within their equipment, uh, altitude, things like that, that uh, play into their sport, you know, indoors versus outdoors. So it adds a lot of different dimensions to that sport than sometimes you realize when you're watching it. Yeah, I bet. Um, so <laughs> what's your excitement level about going to London, getting to experience all this? Yeah, I'm getting excited. It's been a little bit crazy and chaotic getting every everything ready, all the athletes ready and on their on their way and uh we've got a lot going on here at the training center getting ready for some improvements in our sports medicine clinic and things like that. So a lot of a lot of balls up in the air at once, but uh getting excited and getting ready to just excited to get there and Hope these athletes bring home the gold. Absolutely. Well, thank you. So uh, we're going to have more questions for Amber later, but I want to introduce our third panelist. Uh, before I do, you're listening to Move Forward Radio, the blog talk radio program of MoveForwardPT.com. 
Um, a reminder that we'll, you can submit questions for any of our panelists via Twitter by tweeting us at MoveForwardPT or using the MoveForward hashtag. Or you can call us, here's the number one more time, at 646-564-9841, and we'll be taking those calls after we introduce our third panelist. So thus far, we've talked to two physical therapists who will be at the Olympics, and our next physical therapist provides a window into a low, lower profile but still equally impressive Paralympic Games, which believe, uh, begin in London on August 29th. Denise Hutchins, welcome. Thank you very much. So uh, you've been working with athletes with disabilities for almost 30 years, I believe. Is that correct? Right. So um, just talk about how you got involved with the, the Paralympic Games uh, to begin with. Well, I started... Um basically locally, getting involved with a disability sport group out of the rehab center where I was working in Oklahoma City, and then actually moved into the meat management and officiating side of it. Um, was actually one of the referees at the Paralympics in Atlanta in 1996 uh, before I shifted over to classification and gradually worked my way up from national to um, international. Um, and now one of the international athletics classifiers. Um, and internationally, athletics is track and field. Um, so I've been doing that um, since about 2005. So, um, and we'll get to that that classifier part of it in a second. I think what, what everybody knows about the Paralympic Games is it obviously involves athletes with various physical disabilities, but those uh, physical disabilities can differ significantly from athlete to athlete. So, just can you describe how the Paralympics are structured to create a level playing field within the games themselves? Sure. Um, we actually have kind of shifted our terminology from disability to using more of the World Health Organization's impairment just because it explains more how it Im impacts the sport. Um, the disability is such a wide spectrum. So we really look at um, 10 eligible impairments, uh, impaired muscle power, like a paralysis, impaired passive range of motion, um, some joint dysarthrodist, uh, limb deficiencies, uh, leg link differences, either congenital or acquired, uh, athletes with short stature due to achondroplasia, and then um, athletes with hypertonia, ataxia, athetosis, and those are the physical impairment groups. We also have visual impairment and intellectual impairment. And some of the sports, like swimming, track and field, will include athletes from all the impairment types, uh, where some of the other sports um, may only do a single impairment, like goalball is for visually impaired, or bocce is for hypertonia or ataxia. And then some of them, like equestrian cycling, use a few of the impairment types. And so how, um, you know, if, I mean, how structured are things in terms of, you know, and um, pick the sport, but an athlete, say, who's missing one leg versus an athlete who's missing two, would they actually compete in separate events, or would something happen where, how how are they evaluated so that they would compete together and have an equal opportunity? Part of the problem with the, the classification system is simply the number of athletes in the world competing in those classes. Um, they try as much as they can not to combine classes. Generally, the athletes with a single-leg disability versus a double-leg disability um, will be competing against each other. Um, there's just not enough athletes in the world to make separate classes for those. But beyond that, um, the classification really 
puts the athletes into groupings similar to what you would do in other competitions by age, gender, weight, um, just to make fair competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do that through a series of assessments um, to actually classify the athletes into sport classes. Um, so there's, for the athletes with um, abnormal tone, there's actually eight different classes they could be in, four for athletes that use wheelchairs and four for athletes that are ambulatory. For athletes who use wheelchairs, um, there's eight classes for the throwing events and four for track. The amputees um, or leg involvement, um, which a lot of some of the ambulatory polio actually fit into the same class as the amputees, something we don't see very much in the United States, but internationally there's a lot of athletes with post-polio. And those athletes have um, four classes now, five right now. There will be four. Um, And then the um, short stature, um, right now there's one class. Um, After London, those will be split into two classes. We were finding a huge um, variety in the height and decided that that was the fairest way. There'll actually be a taller class and a shorter class now. Right. So that's, as I understand, going to be your role in the Paralympic Games at, at, at the Paralympics is as a classifier. So what what is that process like? What's that evaluation process like? How many people are involved? How long does it take? We actually start working, um, even though the uh, Paralympics starts on the 29th, we will start working on the 24th seeing athletes. Um, and there will be, um, we work in pairs, um, usually a medical and a technical person together teamed up, and there will be four panels um, for the physical impairment, two for visual, and I believe one or two for the intellectual. So the um, I can speak primarily on the physical because that's the part I'm involved mm-hmm. with the most. Mm-hmm. Um, we will spend about 30 minutes doing an evaluation in basically a clinic setting, um, looking at, um, depending on their impairment, uh, looking at their power, their range, their coordination, abnormal tone, their height. Um, We don't obviously assess every area on every athlete. If you have someone who's had a spinal cord injury and has paralysis, we're looking at power. Mm -hmm. From there, we may take them out... um, into a simulated situation on the track or the field and actually watch them in a competing at about 80% of their performance just to see how that impairment is impacting their sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's very, uh, very much like Amber was talking about. You have to know enough about the sport to know you need to be able to do this for this event. For the javelin, you need to be able to do this movement. But on our part, you also have to know that in order to do that movement, you need these muscles. If this athlete doesn't have these muscles, then it impacts their ability to perform that sport in this regard. So it's a lot of determination. So that has to be a lot of athletes. I mean, do return athletes have to go through the evaluation process each Paralympics? Uh, No. No, we have uh, what's called, well, we have three different classes of athletes. We have new classes, 
we have review, and we have confirmed. In the Paralympics, there will be no new athletes. Everyone had to have been seen by an international classification panel at some time. For many of the athletes, they'll move directly into the confirmed status, an amputee. Mm-hmm. There's not much else they can be but an amputee. Their um, criteria is you're a baloney amputee, you're a baloney amputee. For some of the muscle power they may have, we seldom have complete spinal cord injuries anymore. We have incomplete spinal cord injuries, so the designations are not so clear-cut anymore. You may have an athlete who's got some trunk, maybe some a little bit of leg movement, but how much does that impair their sport still is what we're looking at. So, general question, and and with you know the experience you have over three decades, I'm I'm assuming you have a fairly good sense of this. Where's the Paralympic movement in general? I mean, how, how do rates of participation today compare to ten years ago or even five years ago? They're actually growing again. Um, overall, the numbers I think are growing, especially internationally. In some of the um, third world countries, it was. Um, look down upon to have a disability Mm -hmm. but now that you're having athletes coming back with medals representing their country making their country proud suddenly it's okay to be disabled Um, so we're seeing a lot more of athletes coming out of some countries that we normally don't see a whole lot of athletes coming from so overall we're seeing more from other countries Um, the U.S is growing. Um, Unfortunately, at the Paralympic level, they're holding the number of athletes in each competition down. Um, The number of athletes that are allowed to participate in London versus Sydney is significantly Mm -hmm. lower. Mm -hmm. So just because of the number of athletes, they've decreased the number of slots available to the countries. So it's hard to really justify that. But just looking at locally and nationally and at some of the other meets, there's more opportunity for athletes to compete. It used to be just the Paralympics. Now there's world championships. There's the Para-Pan Games or the Asian Pan Games. The the Asia Para Games are similar to the Para-Pan Games like the Pan American Games. Sure. So you actually have competition, major international competition, almost every year now, which eight years ago you didn't necessarily have that much competition. And more and more of the Paralympic athletes are competing on the European circuit now as well as the uh, American circuit. So we're getting, overall, just lots more international competition. So... um you know the the other thing we talked about weekend warriors earlier and and obviously another um topic in this country has been wounded warriors in recent years i mean have you seen any increased interest or participation among wounded warriors i mean this would seem to be a a wonderful opportunity for people who were athletic and in many cases competitive to begin with to to continue to be involved and continue to compete oh absolutely um in fact the us paralympics has a program specifically designed to meet the needs of the wounded warriors, be it recreationally or competition. 
Um, and so we're seeing a lot more of those athletes coming into the program um, in 2008. One of the swimmers was um, one of the wounded warriors who had been out um, of rehab like six months maybe and competed at the Paralympics. Um, one of the shooters um, is actually still active duty. He's the first active duty um, soldier to compete in the Paralympics. So that'll be um, a new thing, and he's yeah. actually still in active duty, so he's part of the Army's athlete program as well. So that's something I think we're going to see more and more of. Well, speaking of interesting crossovers, that leads us to um, a lot of people might be familiar with Oscar Pistorius, who if they don't know his actual name, they may know him by his nickname, which is the Blade Runner, and he's the he runs a 400 meters for South Africa. He's actually going to be competing in the Olympics, not the Paralympics, and he wears the carbon fiber blade prosthetics that um, helped him get that nickname. And I'm, I, I have two questions sort of related to this. One is just a, a broad general question, which is, how often in treating athletes who have these impairments and then might use these prosthetics are essentially their functional muscles, the muscles that don't have any impairment, do they do they get unusual injuries in those muscles as a result of these prosthetics which are making up for body parts that they don't have? Um, I don't really think so. I, the Most of the injuries that we get are hamstring pulls, groin pulls. Um, one thing that we probably see more frequently is falls, um, mm-hmm. simply because uh, athletes using prosthesis, if they have a prosthesis only on one uh, one leg, you're going to see some asymmetries. The blade doesn't respond the same way as your plantar flexors do. Um, so you're going to have different muscles, um, different uh, reaction time from each leg. For the athletes that are uh, bilateral, um, you're actually going to see, because they have no real foot on the ground, the sensation is not there. So you see much more balance problems. So during that explosion out of the blocks, they're dealing with balance as well as acceleration. Right. And so then the second question that's related to that is that crossover. I mean, obviously you can't predict how Olympic rules might change to govern um, someone who uses those carbon fiber blades. But essentially if that door remains open, which appears to be open now, I mean, do you think we're going to see more of that in the future, These, these athletes who are using these prosthetic devices competing in the Olympic Games? I think as long as the Olympics leaves it open, um, I think there's a possibility. You know, right now the times on most of the athletes are not to the Olympic standard, but they've come, the times have been dropping regularly every year, so who knows? Well, that's great. That's Fascinating. So um, I'm going to have some questions now to to the entire group. Um, At this time, if any of our callers, um, this will be a good time to call. The number is 646-564-9841. Also, you can submit questions via Twitter at MoveForwardPT or by using the MoveForward hashtag. You're listening to MoveForward Radio. We're talking to physical therapists who are helping Team USA uh, prepare to compete in the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Uh, With that said, questions for the group, um, and I'll start um, at the top with uh, Scott just because we haven't talked to Scott in a while. Is there any common misconception that we have about Olympic athletes in in terms of their conditioning or how they prepare to compete? 
You know, I think everybody realizes the athletes train pretty hard. Again, I, I said earlier, it's not every, uh, you know, every four years, it's every day. So the athletes train hard in every respect. So I don't think directly there's uh, any misconceptions with their their goals and, and their dedication. But, you know, like what we talked about earlier, I think uh, people think that the athletes just have it easy when they're at the Olympic Village and uh, and things are all, you know, we, what we see back home on TV is, is only the, you know, the, the medal ceremonies and, and the positive stuff. But the athletes just go through a lot, you know, while they're there. So they go through a lot of ups and downs all in all. Right. Amber, do you have any thoughts? I do. I think uh, that, uh, you know, sometimes we don't realize how much they sacrifice to get to this point. They've uh, given up sometimes up to 12 years of their, you know, sometimes of missing other things that we find important in our lives for training seven days a week for years on end. And, um, you you know, make that sacrifice. And often, as we've seen in some recent media things, they don't really make much money at all. You know, some of the pro athletes are doing okay, but a lot of our other athletes are are having to try and balance school and work and training and all that to to make their dream come true. So there's a lot of a lot of hard work there outside of just what their training is and and I think too that sometimes uh we don't realize there's a lot of the great athletes, you know, 530 athletes made it to the games, but there's a lot of them that are very good that didn't make it, and uh, how, how hard that is for them as well. That uh, you know maybe they've been tra- training for eight years, and this has been their goal, and they just miss it. And so now what? And that's that's something that we uh, have been dealing with the last since all the trials, and and that's yeah. a, that's something that's difficult too. That I don't think maybe the outside world sees. They see those ones that make it, but there's plenty of them behind them that. Uh, are you know are very good as well. So yeah. right, Denise, with with the Paralympic Games or or Paralympic athletes in general, is there a common misconception or things that people would be surprised to to understand? Well, it's only been recently that Paralympic athletes have um, been able to access some of the Paralympic programs, as far as even um, living at the training center. Um, that's a fairly new uh, avenue. Um, a lot of the sponsorship is new to the Paralympic athletes. In the past, they've had to sponsor themselves. They've had to work a full job and train. Um, so they've come a long way recently, and just being able to move up their training and really focus totally on the competition instead of having to worry about where am I going to live, who am I going to train with, what access do I have to facilities, um, I think that's the biggest problem most of our athletes have. Um, the ones that don't live at a training center is how do I access all those things? And it's um, because we're a, not a showcase sport. It um, Everyone knows the Olympic athletes, the Paralympic athletes are not as well known and locally don't always get the support. Yeah, we, with all that, it sounds like the competition is sometimes the easiest part. Uh, we do have a, uh, a caller um, who's got a question. Uh, Katie, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, what's your question? I was wondering, as a, a former college soccer player, what type of preventative um, exercises or training are um, the Olympic athletes doing 
for injuries such as ACL or um, any other main injuries you see, like maybe related to soccer? Are they doing proactive training to prevent those type of injuries on a regular basis? And what would that look like? Amber, do you want to take a shot at that one? Sure. Uh, we have worked with a lot of the sports, and we try and pro- prevention is huge, and so we try and get into in front of those injuries. So we do a lot of... Uh, you know, plyometrics, balance training. We work really closely with strength and conditioning. Um, most athletes have imbalances, and some of those are good things. You know, that's what makes them good at their sport. But when that becomes too much or impacts or uh, is it influencing or, uh, their injuries, then that's where we kind of step in and try and help to to minimize those imbalances, whether it's strength. And a lot of... You know, a lot of our athletes, their core is, back to kind of what Scott was saying, core is huge with just about every sport. And even if you get some of these pro athletes up there, they have shocking core, shocking cores or it doesn't, uh, you know, correlate with their knee control and things like that. And so sometimes it's just taking them back to the basics and making sure that their foundation is uh really really strong and then building back up from that the great thing about working with athletes is they respond very quickly so you know you can get you can move them through a program much quicker than uh somebody that that maybe doesn't have as well of uh, as good of a um, body awareness so uh, i think you know we do a lot of jump training strengthening as well as proprioception a lot of balance work um with you know and starting them just on the ground on single leg and then adding in different surfaces and then adding in distractions, adding in other people, having them run through things, different directions, putting them on the surface that they practice and train on and just taking that kind of through the next level. But it's really key, really key to make sure that you've got that foundation because if you jump too soon, it's really not effective and could actually be detrimental. So that's something that we've been working on with a lot of the different sports um, and I think has been uh, effective, and we've seen some of those uh, injury rates kind of drop. So that's been good. So that actually kind of inspires another question that that we have here, which is uh, I'm going to kick Scott, and, and that's what can what can somebody watching at home learn from an Olympic athlete that in terms of the way they prepare that is realistic? I mean, obviously it's tempting to see these people and hear their stories about how much they push through injury, and I think potentially you know, come away with the idea that, oh, something hurts, I should just keep pushing through it because that's what the Olympians do. I mean, in what way does the way that they prepare behind the scenes, that they don't see, create role models, uh, or do they act as role models in ways that, that the average person should follow? Well, I mean, you know, we're not Vince Lombardi and the Green Bay Packers, and, and we can't just, you know, push through everything and no pain, no gain. That's really not the way they do it. You know, yes, at that time, at the games, we just take care of whatever they have and band-aid things up. Of course, that's what happens at the time. But, but as Amber said, and I don't mean to echo the same thing, but there's so much time and so many different variables that really go into taking care of oneself. And I think, you know, it's just a multifactorial, vari- you know, equation that goes into it. And, you know, it starts from the mind and the body and just really juggling every aspect of life and, and that's really what I, what I think people could learn is, is that it's not just one variable. You know, you can't just do great at one thing. It's a balance of the whole 
you know, every variable in the equation to make the formula work right. And if it works right on that day, well, boy, you're, you know, it's, it's a treat. But they could be just as great and just miss it by a second, as Amber said. And so many people, they get just sliced to the side. So, you know, that's pretty much what I see. A question for each of you, and this is, you know, this is probably hard to answer in, in some respects, but, I mean, is one of the biggest gaps essentially between an Olympic athlete and somebody who isn't, at least in terms of how they take care of themselves? I mean, are, are they just simply more proactive in terms of their care? I mean, compared to the to somebody you see walking in off the street with an injury, um, do they tend to just be more proactive and constantly needing to assess themselves and where they are? I mean, I, I see it as consistency. You know, they the athletes that I see that do it well, they are consistent day in and day out. And that's it, you know, and they maintain their schedule, they maintain their diet, and that's how they do it. And that's what success seems to be on, on this level is really just maintaining what you're doing and slowly kind of reaching new plateaus over and over again is how I see it. Amber? Yeah, I think one thing is that they really train smarter rather than harder. Yeah. And uh, I think that's where it comes into play. They really, It's really important to balance their recovery as well as their training and making sure that they've optimized that so that the next day they're right back at where they need to be to train again hard, you know, whether that's making sure they have the right fuel and all the, all the factors like uh, Scott said. But it's really training smart and uh, making sure that there's not a lot of, they don't have a lot of wasted time, wasted energy, things like that. So... You know, there's nap time here at training center. Everyone has nap. It's pretty quiet around lunchtime. But that's important because they have two or three day, three a day trainings that are really intense. And so it's really important for that balance. Yeah, apparently to become a champion, you have to be able to nap like a champion. That's always <laughs> yes. important, too. Denise, do you have any thoughts? Oh, just with the Paralympic athletes, I think a lot of theirs is also really learning to maximize um what they have um, rather than focusing on their impairment, but really looking at, okay, these are the muscles I have left, this is the range I have left, this is what I need to maximize. And I think a lot of times new athletes tend to look at what they don't have. Um, And I think the Paralympic athletes are really good at looking at where am I now, what do I need to do to get my max. Um, And that's a different focus. Yeah, that's a great mindset for all of us, frankly, and and that leads to well, let, let me ask one question and give each of you guys a shot. What have you? Give me something that you've learned from working with these athletes, either you know on a personal level or professionally. Um, you know, when, is there whether there's one specific story that stands out as as a moment or just something that over time you've you've come away from um, as a result of working with these Olympic athletes, Scott? You know, it's the it's the presence of being in the moment when you're there. You know, some of the athletes that I've seen that actually happen to win on that day, there's just a, a relaxed presence about them that I see that I that I might try to emulate. Uh, I guess personally, sometimes in in certain encounters, they they know that they've trained so hard. They may, they know that they put the time in. And if you're solid and you know you've done that, I think you can come to the game's confident or come to almost any aspect in life confident. So I've learned to just really prepare myself and and on that game day, just be present, relax, and kind of just let the motors go. Amber? Uh, Yeah, I've had so many wonderful experiences working with the athletes and uh, a lot with the Paralympians as well. I feel like uh, 
just every day here is you get to hear the Olympic story over and over again and and um some of the challenges that they've come through in their lives um you know their backgrounds and where they've come to get where they are you know a lot of our a lot of our athletes have come from foreign countries uh have been abused in the past or have rough situations and they come out of that on top and they're they truly are an inspiration to you know to the ones behind them as well as those that get to work with them every day so i just you know i, I just it's a privilege to be able to to work with them and hear their story every day they have just such a great focus and dedication and like i said they sacrifice a lot to to do something they love um and sometimes without getting a you know a real visible benefit from that and so i think I think that's hard to to do day in and day out and to keep keep your focus on that point that's four years down the road sometimes or maybe it's tomorrow and uh so I think just their their amount of focus and their ability to to work hard for that for that yeah, goal. I've always, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was I've always thought one of the most one of the hardest things in life must be to finish fourth in the Olympic games. I just yeah. <laughs> that must be just take a, a lot of more uh you know, fortitude and emotional courage. Denise? Well, I think um, probably my most memorable um, as uh, I went with the juniors two weeks after 9-11 to a meet in Australia. And their reaction to the first time one of the athletes won and the national anthem was played um, in consideration of 9-11, they were all... um, looked at it with a different perspective, I think, after that, to realize that they were representing the United States. And I think many of them um, looked at their training much differently after that. Um, As a junior, they probably hadn't quite developed all the strong focus that they needed, but at that meet, um, I saw a lot of changes in the athletes in regard to being able to represent the United States. Oh, that's a great way to go out. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank our physical therapist panel, Scott Weiss, Amber Donaldson, Denise Hutchins. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. And we wish you safe travels and best wishes in London and, and all the success. Move Forward Radio is the blog talk radio show for MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Insight from our panel is for information purposes only and should never be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at moveforwardpt.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and YouTube at Move Forward PT. If you have feedback on this episode of Move Forward Radio or if you have ideas for future shows, please email consumer at apta.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Bellamy. Good night. Thank you for tuning in to Move Forward Radio. For more information and to find a physical therapist in your area, visit moveforwardpt.com. Thank you for tuning in.